Good morning. Turn with me in your Bibles once again to Psalm 119, verse 113. Psalm 119, verse 113. I'm going to read once again the scripture text for this day. Then we'll pray and see what the Lord might have for us. So join with me as I would read. Once again, Psalm 113 through 120. I hate the double-minded, but I love your law. You are my hiding place and my shield. I hope in your word. Depart from me, you evildoers, that I may keep the commandments of my God. Uphold me according to your promise that I may live, and let me not be put to shame in my hope. Hold me up that I may be safe and have regard for your statutes continually. You spurn all who go astray from your statutes, for their cunning is in vain. All the wicked of the earth you discard like dross, therefore I love your testimonies. My flesh trembles for fear of you, and I am afraid of your judgments. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we come once again to your word. Come once again before your throne of grace and plead for mercy of grace and time and help of need. Father, we need your help to discern the thoughts and intents of our hearts in the light of Scripture. I need your help to speak clearly the words of truth. We need your help to humble ourselves in the light of a holy and righteous God. According to Proverbs 1, we know that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Father, we are praying that you would instill in us this morning a reverential fear of who you are as King of Kings and Lord of Lords, the creator and sustainer of the universe, the author of life and the taker of life, the one who orchestrates all things for your glory alone. So I would plead this morning that you might not give your glory to any other, according to Isaiah. That your glory would not be upon our, our glory would not be in our thoughts or in my words, but your glory would be above all else. We thank you and praise you for this day. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. Psalm 119, 113 through 120. Let me make this opening statement. We're speaking about a double-minded man. We're speaking about a man who is vain in his thoughts. If our mind is not regularly set on the word of God, then it will wonder as it pleases, and it will please to wonder to the falsehood that permeates all and everything that is around us. If our mind is not set regularly on the word of God, that it will wonder as it pleases and it will please to wonder to the falsehood that permeates all and everything around us. Everything around us. What is everything that is around us? There's much debate about the proper figure, but most would agree that four in ten marriages today, not only those that are married, but those that are getting married or will be married in the future, four out of ten will end in divorce. Pornography is a multi-billion industry 
on par with the amount of money that iTunes will make this year in selling digital content or on par with the water industry, the water bottle industry. Abortion is as much in the church as elsewhere. One in six women who have had abortions are evangelical Christians. Every day, young people of Christian families are walking away from the faith. I'm not saying that our generation or our, the culture we live in today is any worse than that which has come before. Sin is sin. But we do fight a great and mighty battle. And it's within our own walls most of the time. In contrast... There are an estimated six to seven billion Bibles that have been in print, that have been in, that are in print and have been sold. That's literally one Bible for every person. And this doesn't obviously count for the millions of Bibles that are easily available online in digital form that people read every day. We've never had, and in the history of the world, the amount of access that we have to Christian media than we do today, whether it would be by radio or by internet, or by print. It's free, most of it, and available. You can leave today and go listen to any preacher, most of any preachers in the world today. If you want to listen to another preacher, you have that availability to do it. You can turn on the radio in your car, and you have the choice of multiple stations of some sort of Christian media or sermons. It's never been more available than it is today. So if we have that dramatic contrast between the permeation of sin in the world and yet the most availability we've ever had of biblical access, access to biblical teaching, it would seem clear that the church has more than ever the tools to fight the battle against the enemy and yet more than ever we are not availing ourselves of these tools. Many Christians read very little of Scripture. The thought would go something for me, would go something of this nature. Well, I can listen to John Piper on Mondays while I work out, and I subscribe to this amount, these amount of blogs that are, have Christian influence. And my wife and I talk about Christianity all the time and the issues of the day as it pertains to Christianity. We memorize Scripture. We talk, about, we talk to a friend about Jesus. And it's so busy that I don't quite have the time to fit in too much of a Bible reading, but that's okay because it's out, my, my whole world is, is permeated by biblical things, so I don't necessarily have to read the Bible. Starbucks has almost driven itself out of business a few years ago because that's exactly what they did. They permeated the culture to the point that it became commonplace and, and why buy it anymore? We've gotten to the point in America where Bibles are so common. We have so many. Each person in, in each family has so many Bibles that it's commonplace. So there's, there's, there's nothing special about it. There's nothing that really would be anything different than the rest of these. Just another three or four or five books on the shelf. We are double-minded in all our ways. Few Christians today are single-minded, have a single-minded focused upon Christ. And our thoughts are mainly dominated by vanity by entertainment, by self-centeredness, our thoughts are watered down, water down our witness, and promote a love of mediocrity. We have no longer a desire for excellence in Christianity in our own lives. We are neither hot nor cold, and nor do we desire to be anything other than lukewarm. Turn with me to Revelations 3. Fourteen through eighteen. 
In Revelation 2 and Revelation 3, there's a description of seven churches. And these were historical churches that John on the Isle of Patmos wrote letters to these actual churches. And they were taken to these churches and read, and we don't know how how that exactly looked or, or what exactly happened, but we know that these seven letters were written to seven churches. But we also know that these seven churches are very much... Uh, examples are models of the different types of churches that you can find today. And I believe that most scholars, and I would certainly agree, that the seventh example is the worst and is the most like the Christian church of today. Revelation three fourteen through 18. This, I believe, describes well the Church of America. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea, write the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You're neither cold nor hot. Would you would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. You need to have some historical context of Laodicea. It was a very rich, very affluent city. It was a a crossroads, a city that was at a crossroads of north, south, east, and west. And so it thrived in many different ways. It was an extremely rich city. It was the center of most of the banking world at that time. There was much money that was there in Laodicea. So much money, in fact, that in 60 AD, the city was flattened by an earthquake and Rome offered to send money to rebuild it. And they said, no need. We've got enough money of our own to rebuild it. They prided themselves in the fact that they could cast off Rome's offer and they rebuilt the city with their own money more glorious than it had ever been. Not only was it the center of most of the banking world at that time, it had one of the most prestigious medical schools there of all time. Known for, and this is why John references this, known for their eye salve. They had created and come up with a concoction that made people travel from far distances in order to have this ointment placed on their eyes to give some relief. It was also one of the most prestigious textile industries of that day. And they were known for their exportation of black, shiny, soft wool that went into most of the clothing or fabrics of that day. It had a serious problem. Although it was a great city in many ways, it lacked water. They didn't have any water. The nearest water was in the surrounding cities, miles away. They didn't have any springs or water. And a city cannot endure without water. So they undertook upon themselves to put an underground stone aqueduct five miles to the nearest spring. And they literally carved three-foot pipes out of stone, three foot in diameter pipes. They'd carve these out ladies in the ground and created themselves as aqueduct. They couldn't be a mighty military city, obviously, because it was easy to cut off the city with water. You found the aqueduct, you plugged it up, and you would be able to take the city. In the town of Heriopolis, six miles north of Laodicea, it was famous for its hot springs. 
The hot springs, they were known as very therapeutic. They're still there today. People still use them. And people would go soak in these and get the therapeutic remedies that were offered through these hot springs. In Colossa, 10 miles to the south and east, it was known for its cold, clear, refreshing water. The city of Laodicea didn't have the hot water of Heriopolis. It did not have the cold, refreshing water of Colossa. What they had was a foul and dirty and tepid water. That by the time it arrived from being five miles under the ground, it was lukewarm at best. In fact, it was known that if you went to drink water in Laodicea, if you were from Colossa or Heriopolis, you would drink it and spit it out because of how nasty it would taste. If you live in the hill country, you know that we, we deal with hard water. And if you cut open your pipes, you see all the junk that has formed in there. Well, can, you can imagine what their pipes would have looked like after five miles of collecting all this sediment and nastiness. And then people had to somehow drink that. And you can see then why God had the Apostle John write to Laodicea and said, You're rich and you're, you have beautiful clothing and you have prestigious banking and you have prestigious medical schools and yet you're lukewarm. The church in Laodicea was, was large, and yet it had taken on the characteristics of the water supply. It had become double-minded. They would go to church, but their minds were filled with the cultural and social delights that were all around them. Their minds were filled with vanity. And this is the context. This is the same line of thinking that the psalmist is talking about in Psalm 119. Go with me back to Psalm 119. Church of America is much like Laodicea. I remember coming back from my first missions trip and realizing why it was so hard to spread the gospel in America. It's because nobody has a need. We're so rich. The poorest man on the street has more than most in third world countries. He can have whatever he wants. I took a trip uh, when I was about 20, my friends and I traveled six hours back to my parents' house. I went to pick them up, traveled six hours. And we decided just for the kicks to stop at every Dairy Queen we found along the way and go in and ask for free food. And we got free food at every single place. We told them, look, we're traveling from spot to spot. Thought we'd stop. I wondered if you guys would give us something free off your menu. And every time it was, what would you like? I like a burger. Okay, you have three friends. I'll give you three burgers. You want a blizzard? Give you three blizzards. It was incredible. You can get, it is so easy to get things in America. No one has a need. We're all absorbed in this, this, this wealth of society. God's blessed us tremendously, but it's beginning to take its toll. The previous section in Psalm 119 was very practical, 105 through 112. 113 through 120 is much more on the emotional and mental side. The battle for the Christian is in the mind. We know this. The battle for the Christian is in the mind. And this is the battle that we see the psalmist is in, beginning with 113. I hate the double-minded, but I love your law. And I want to give three requirements that are given in this passage of those who would be single-minded for Christ. First requirement, to be single-minded for Christ requires faith. 
To be single-minded for Christ, Christ requires faith. And you see this in verse 114. You are my hiding place and my shield. I hope in your word. The psalmist has just declared that God is his refuge, hiding place, his protection, there his shield. And yet he's now waiting for the Lord to work, waiting to see what ensues upon his, his time of waiting upon God. And most of the Christian life is, involves us surrendering our timeline and our decision making to God's timeline and what God's decisions would be. Submitting to his perfect timing. This word hope, you see that. 114, you see hope. And then you also see hope in 116. Those are actually two different Hebrew words. And 114, the word hope is not necessarily this hope of it's coming right around the corner. It's much more translated as a, a waiting, a remaining, a delaying for something that's to come. And it's best seen there, actually, in the Old Testament. You get a full and clear picture of this. Turn with me to 1 Samuel 13. A very clear picture is given, and it's actually the same word used, this word hope. The same Hebrew word is used here in 1 Samuel 13, beginning in verse 8. Israel has demanded a king. God has given them a king in King Saul. And we see verse 8 of 1 Samuel 13. He waited seven days. Well, if you flip quickly back to 1 Samuel 10 verse 8, you see, Dan, you see Samuel's instruction to Saul. Now, when these signs meet you, verse 7 of 1 Samuel 10, do what your hands find to do for God is with you. Then go down before me to Gilgal, and behold, I'm coming to, to you to offer burnt offerings and to sacrifice peace offerings. Seven days you shall wait. That word wait is the same, same Hebrew word as in 119. Seven days you shall wait until I come to you and show you what you, what you shall do. Going back to, 113, um, to uh, 1 Samuel 13, verse 8. He waited seven days, but the time appointed by Samuel... But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. So Saul said, Bring the burnt offerings here to me, and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. As soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came, and Saul went out to meet him and greet him. And Samuel said, What have you done? And Saul said, When I saw that the people were scattering from me, and you did not come within the days appointed that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. And then look at the excuse. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. And Samuel said to him, you have done foolishly. This is often the same way in our own lives. God gives clear promises in Scripture of what we're to do and how we're to wait. And we fail in the 11th hour. May we not be like Saul. Because God, according in, in Psalm 119, has granted us the promise that he is our hiding place and our shield. And he simply asks us to wait there in the promises of his word for what he will do. A single-minded person is a person of faith. The person 
that realizes that this world is not his or her home, that thinking God's way, that doing things God's way will be strange in comparison to this world, but no matter how strange it may seem, it is the right way and the person of faith will do it. May we not give up upon God's promises. May we have faith in his promises. Second, to be single-minded requires fleeing from the false hope of the world. To be single-minded requires fleeing the false hope of the world. You see this in 115 through 117. Depart from me, you evildoers, that I may keep the commandments of my God. In verse 115, we see the psalmist has banished from him, he's removed from his presence, anything and everything that would keep him from living out the ways of his God. Why? We're supposed to be in the world and not of it. Why would he banish those who would not be keeping God's ways, the evildoers? Because the company you keep, the company that I keep both physically and mentally, are the majority, are are, are the massive influences upon what I do. They massively impact my actions, my deeds, my words, my thoughts. And my deeds, my actions, reveal the true nature of my heart. And in a world, in a society today, where we do not want to judge upon a person, we're afraid to judge a person by what they do, we say, don't judge me. That's not what Scripture says. We will be judged by our actions. So in Proverbs 23, 7, For as he thinks within himself, for as a man thinks within himself, so is he. The enemy well knows that if you can swing a man's thoughts, if you can move a man's thoughts away from Scripture and the principles therein, you will succeed in eventually turning the man's actions and emotions and the relationships as well. We've got to analyze our deeds. Matthew seven sixteen. You will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? Romans two, six through eight. He will render to each man according to his works, to those who by patience and well doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. We will be judged by our actions. But notice here, what we have to be very careful of is most Christians today find it relatively easy or easier to depart and banish from themselves any act of sin that is blatant in its nature. And yet we fail to banish from ourselves anything that would influence our minds or our hearts or our emotions that may not necessarily be bad, but that would eventually drive us away and towards sin, drive us away from God. So the question being is, are we actively seeking to remove anything from within our life that distracts us from keeping God's way? It's the gray areas. And the question for you is, are you bold enough? And are you courageous enough? And are you humble enough? To look at the gray areas that everybody around you may be doing and say, that doesn't work for me. I can't do that. It may not be bad in and of itself, but if I do that, my mind wonders. I become double-minded. My emotions flutter in ways that are hard for me to control. Be warned that if we're not courageous enough and and, and, and bold enough and humble enough to do that, 
that eventually my mind and my emotion will eventually cause my actions to follow suit. And though I may be thinking this and not doing it, eventually I will do it. Number three. Number one, to be single-minded requires faith. Number two, to be single-minded requires fleeing the false hope of the world, removing whatever necessary, banishing it from you there. As you see, depart from me, you evildoers, there in verse 115. But number three, found in verse 120, to be single-minded requires fear of God. To be single-minded requires fear of God. Proverbs 1.7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. You see in verse 120, my flesh trembles for fear of you, and I am afraid of your judgments. Do we have a biblical view of God's view of sin? My prayer is often for myself and for you as the flock that we might see ourselves in the light of God's holiness. That we might experience what Isaiah experienced in Isaiah 6. Otherwise, we're left to conjure up our own image of what God thinks of sin. And it's always far less than what he thinks of it. When people begin to develop a reverential fear of God, revival begins to break out. This is historical in the church. Arguably the greatest preacher that America has ever born was Jonathan Edwards. And the Great Awakening was birthed by God's grace after his, second, after his famous servant, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God in the 1700s. And what few people know is he actually preached that sermon twice. And it was only the second time when the Great Awakening began. The first time was preached about a week earlier and not one person was moved. And yet God saw fit to begin the movement of the Great Awakening through a sermon on the understanding, a sermon on the belief, the sermon on the truth of the way God views sin. If we want to be single-minded, if the majority of Americans, Christian Americans, are double-minded, what is the practical application? I want to give five ways seen in this passage to develop a single-minded focus. Five ways to develop a single-minded focus. Number one, found in 113. I hate the double-minded, but I love your law. That word love, translated in the Hebrew, means to pant or breathe. And you find that in Psalm 42, verse 1. As a deer pants for water, so my soul pants for you, O God. Spurgeon said, when we, lo- when we love the law, it becomes a law of love, and we cling to it with our whole heart. Practical application number one. Learn to love and hope in God's word alone. You can underword alone, underline word alone as your standard for everything. As your standard for everything. When we do not bring the sword, the Bible's in our home, but when we do not open it and bring the sword to battle every single day, when we leave it on the shelf, we naturally regress to a standard made up by mass populace and justified in our own minds. And this looks something like this. As I was driving today, this last week on the, in the car, I heard a, a preacher describe a thief who, when arrested, they found out he had concocted 
seven rules of conduct for himself. He had his own conduct by which he administered his thievery. Things like, I'm only going to rob during the night. I won't rob during the day. I'm only going to take cash, no check or credit. I'm not going to harm anybody. And he went on down the list. And although seven rules may have been admirable for a thief to even have rules of conduct, he was not judged by those rules, was he? Upon his arrest, he was tried according to the standard of the law of the land, not according to that which he had risen up in his own mind as his standard for how to conduct his business. Oftentimes, when we don't avail ourselves of the sword and we don't bring it every day to battle, we raise up in our own minds a standard by which is right and wrong. And it's justified by mass populace. Well, he's doing it. I can do it too. Well, they don't seem to have any problem with that. They watch that. They do this. It doesn't seem that bad. Those people are doing it worse than I am. I'm not as bad as this sinner. You can see how we begin to justify our actions by our own standards. We cannot do this. We've got to see Scripture alone as the standard for everything. If number one, learn to love and obey and hope in God's word alone as your standard for everything. Number two, found in verse 115, depart from all ties with the cunning deception of the world. We're commanded, as I said, not to be, not to be, in the, not to be of the world, but we are commanded to be in it. We're born in it. And so I use the word ties on purpose. Depart from all ties with the world. Anything that ties us to itself, we've got to cut because we're bound to Christ. And that alone is what should bind us. Nothing else should bind us. Habits, secret sins, habits which prick your conscience, we've got to cut them. Whatever influences may lead you apart to, to depart from God must be departed from and if need be radically departed from. You see that in Matthew 7 where it talks about if your hand offends you, cut it off. We're not talking physical actual cutting off. We're giving a mental picture here of the aggression by which we should approach the departure from sin. Our soul is at stake. And if we, even in the slightest way, as the Church of America, reflect the Church of Laodicea, then our soul is at stake if we do not radically depart from sin because God, Christ, will come back and we will hear the fatal words, I never knew you. Number three, recognize your identity in Christ. This is also found in 115. In all of Psalm 119, the longest passage in Scripture, there's only one verse that uses the word God, and this is it. And 115, the word God is not used anywhere else in Psalm 119, 172 verses. The word God is only used once. That I may keep the commandments of my God. And this is a beautiful way in which it's used. There's this identity of who your God and King is. And one of the lies that the enemy bombards our thoughts with is, if you don't play a little bit with the world, if you don't fit in a little bit with the world, 
then your identity is at stake. And this lie is straight to the heart of where our identity is with, of who our identity is with. Is it with the world or is it in Christ? And the enemy will say, you'll never be accepted. You'll look weird. Nobody will want to hang out with you. Nobody will want to talk with you. Because every single time they do, all that comes out of your mouth is this God stuff. And you don't know what's going on. And you don't know the latest song. And you don't know the latest fashion. And nobody does that. That's a direct assault on who your identity is with. Is it in Christ or is it in the world around us? We must recognize our identity. There's no time to do this, but I encourage you, go to Ephesians 1, 2, and 3. And mark the amount of blessings that are given to the man and woman and boy and girl that is in Christ. And they're innumerable. Count them. Number four. Number one was learn to love and a hope in God's word alone is your standard for everything. Number two, depart from all ties with the cunning deception of the world. Number three, recognize your identity in Christ. Number four, you find in verse 118 through verse 20, realize the consequences of sin. Listen to this. Listen to the consequences of sin. God will spurn, reject, push aside all who go astray from his standard, his statutes, for their cunning is in vain. All the wicked, and who are the wicked? The wicked are those that are not of God. Those that have not been saved. Those that have, that maybe look good, but they are, if they are not of Christ, they are evil. You discard like dross. Dross is what comes forth from fire. What comes forth from suffering in a believer. And if you're found not true, you'll be tossed aside with no, with no thought, with no emotion. Dross is, is worthless. It's just cast to the side. It's like salt that loses its savor. It's just cast out. It has no more good. It has no more usefulness any longer. This is how God views the wicked. But notice, notice the way that the psalmist realizes the consequences of sin. He trembles and he says, wow, if that's the consequence, then I'm going to go the opposite way and I'm going to love your testimonies. Realize the consequences of sin. I think one of the most powerful things that you can do in your fight against sin is to take the particular lie that you're being bombarded with and literally write down five to ten things on a three-by-five card of the consequences of giving into this sin and put it in your pocket. So that when you're tempted to think this lustful thought, this anxious thought, this worried thought, whatever it may be, pull that out and say, if I do this, this is the consequences of these sins. God hates it. I'll break the relationship that I have with God and it must be restored through repentance and forgiveness. God will, if you're a believer, you never lose your salvation, but sin in your life breaks that relationship that must be restored through forgiveness and Seeking repentance. Write these things down. Take them in your life and and apply them. So that when you come to a sin, you're able to pull out and go, no, wait, wait, wait. This is the lie right here. And and this is what really happens if I give in to this. It's a powerful tool. Number five, found in verse 120 as well. Seek humility by knowing God in all. Underline the word all. Seek humility by knowing God in all his glorious nature. 
I've said it before that we oftentimes focus on God's love to the detriment that we do not focus on God's entire being and nature, including his wrath and hatred of sin, including his wrath and hatred against the ungodly. And let me be clear to you, very clear, that if you are a believer in Christ, the wrath of God was swallowed in the cross of Christ. And he no longer deals with you in anger. He deals with you in love. But know very well that he does not play lightly with sin. He hates it. He hates it. And he will deal with it ferociously. A good, a good analogy to understand how we should view our relationship with God is given in the context of marriage. A good, a weak marriage today is often one that thinks either one, it's good, or two, it chooses to ignore the symptoms within the marriage. Boy, we seem to be having a lot of conflict. Boy, we seem to be having times of separation. Boy, we, we, my wife seems to be asking me to do a lot of things and... Why is she continually asking for the same things? I'm not leading my family as I should spiritually. I'm not submitting to my husband as I should spiritually. And yet we ignore these things and we kind of think, well, we're okay. We look pretty good when we're out in public. He's got his arm around me. I speak sweetly to him. Let's ignore some of these symptoms. That's a lie from the enemy. But a strong marriage rarely thinks of itself as strong. But as it grows stronger, it grows more wary and attentive to any possible weakness or threats to the relationship. And our marriage with Christ is the same. We're the bride of Christ. You can't come up and get out of bed in the morning thinking, hey, it's looking pretty good on the outside. You've got to be thinking, man, I'm so grateful for God's grace. But, ooh, I'm seeing a little sin over here. I'm seeing a little weakness. Address it. Hit it. Take it on. Focus on it. Seeking to grow in that relationship with the Lord rather than justifying and comparing horizontally our relationship to Christ with others that are around us. Be ever confident in God's love and redemptive work for you on the cross, but may we never ever be confident of our imperfect love for Him. May we never ever be confident of our imperfect love for Him. It will always wane in moments that we least expect. In closing, we must ask ourselves the question, are we, Fredericksburg Christian Fellowship, are we single-minded Christians? Are we single-mindedly focused on Christ? If you find your heart and mind is double-minded, then we must go back to Christ and repent and come back to Him. And the solution is found in Revelation 3.18. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself in the shame of your nakedness and may not be seen to salve and salve to anoint your eyes that you may be so that you may see Christ is our hope. Christ is our riches. Christ clothes us with the pure garment of holiness. Christ cleanses us. Christ opens our eyes. Christ heals us from sin. Christ is who we're to go to if we find ourselves double-minded. We're to renew our single-minded focus for Him. We're to reflect upon His love for us. What this world needs, what your family needs, and what your marriage needs, and what your children need, and what your workplace needs, and what our friends need, 
what the strangers that wander through our, along our path each day need is not a person who's more relevant or educated to the culture. It needs an, individ, an individual who is God-besotted. That word besotted means intoxicated, infatuated. So enthralled with God that they're, they're clueless of what goes on around them. Think of a man who's drunk, stone drunk. He has no idea of what goes on around him. He can't even walk. He has no understanding of what anybody else is saying to him. He's completely enraptured in this moment. We must be in like, in like, the like way infatuated, intoxicated with Christ. Intoxicated with a single-minded affection on God above all else. This is what the world needs. And it will not happen unless we are people of the world, word. Unless we are people of the word. Unless we are people that bring our swords to the battle each day. To our minds. We may look good. But it's what goes upon, in upon the mind that will eventually affect our actions and our deeds. Bring the word to the battle every day of our lives. Let's pray. Father, forgive me for my double-mindedness. Lord, as I prepared this and and even preached this, such a, a clear call to my own life of the the battle that rages for my mind to steal and to kill and destroy and to distract into a a mode where you're no longer the central theme of my thoughts. It wanders to the pleasures of sin for a season or wanders to prideful thoughts or wanders to to things that are worthless and are a waste of time. And I ask, Father, that you would forgive me and would you be so gracious as to pour upon me and and the Church of America and, and those within this body the mercy and grace needed to repent and realign ourselves with a single-minded focus upon you. Oh, Father, we thank you that, as David said clearly in First Light, the distractions from the enemy our lies saying that Christ is not, cannot fully satisfy, that other things must need satisfy, that Christ cannot. And yet, Lord, the truth is you've given us a perfect, free, wonderful, unspeakable gift in your Son. And there is nothing that will ever and has ever afford the pleasure and satisfaction that can be found only in Christ. So, Father, I pray that you might see fit to change our hard hearts. See fit to call us to yourself. 
see fit to to pull us even at times against our will or on times even unknowingly away from a double-minded, a vanity-minded focus upon this world and bring it back, recalibrate it to a focus upon you as most worthy to be focused upon. Oh God, I thank you for your love. I thank you that you do not deal with us according to our sin. You do not deal with us in anger, but you are a loving Heavenly Father who disciplines us as need be in order that we might be holy as you are holy, because without holiness, no one shall see the Lord. God, we, we have no other choice but to cry out in thankfulness and in gratefulness for what you have given to us and the way you treat us and deal with us each day. And may we respond, although imperfectly so often, but may we respond with a zeal and a love in return for you as our King and our Savior and our Abba Father. Father, we thank you for the day. May we not, may you not allow your word to to be removed from the forefront of our mind this day or this coming week, this coming month, the remainder, the second half of 2013, may we once again refocus ourselves upon you. In Jesus' precious and holy name we pray. Amen.